This is Tap In Geek Out with your hosts, Doug Lund and Eric G. Hollis. We are broadcasting from a very special location today, the Halfpenny Brewery, with the owners and brewers, Chris Rygret and Chris Garner. I want to say first, I, I know this is a busy day for you, so thanks for taking time out of your schedule. What are you guys up to on this fine Sunday? So today's our brew day. Uh, we typically brew on Sundays. Today we are doing the Delta One Bravo IPA. And then our small batch today, we're doing a 100 IBU pale IPA that's 99% non-bittering hops. So it's literally all 20 minutes and in. So it should be one hoppy mother. I like the sound of that. I'm a big fan of your Delta One and some of the other IPAs that you guys have done. I think there's a black one that recently hit the tap. The particular step that you're taking today, I saw vats of some kind of material back there. What was that? So that's all the grain. We have a grain mill that's on a dolly. Uh, So we mill out back. The original plan was to be able to mill outside and have a grain auger that went to the top of the mash tun. The problem is that when you have all this stuff built, you give them literally the dimensions of everything. You give them the dimensions of the doors so they can make sure they can get it in. You give them the dimensions of the room and where the wall is and how tall stuff is. And we did a really great job. Unfortunately, we did all our measurements before the build out and we thought we had everything just right, but the lighting is actually a little bit below where we thought it would be. And so the grain ton that sits on top doesn't fit. Uh Oh, so that was the only thing it still sits out back. And one of these days we have plans to move that up to the ceiling and put it on the roof, but we have to punch a hole in the roof and all of that has sort of has to happen. So, so that's kind of weighted for now. Still, we basically just haul it in on dollies and lift it up and throw it in manually. The old school style of, of doing in. You're both in the same place. You're both here at the brewery once a week on Sundays to make all the magic happen. Yep. And then occasionally we'll brew during the week. Chris and Robert just brewed on Thursday. Thursday, yep. We were out there Thursday. I drink way too much, and I spend too much time in microbrews, and it seems like you guys have a lot more tanks here. You guys go through a lot of different types of beers, so those special batches that you were mentioning. Our second anniversary is coming up in February, so we're trying to you know get shirts and all the other stuff. Um, one of the things we want to do is put together a second anniversary shirt that lists everything we've brewed. As of right now, through the release on the 4th, I think it is, uh, we have 76 beers that we've done in two years. That's a lot of beers. It is. We're homebrewers. So we came from a homebrewing background and we brought our homebrew stuff and set it up and back. So we have a half barrel system that we brew once a week for whatever we feel like doing. So the small batch that we're doing today, we'll see how we like it. If we like it, we'll you know maybe make it in a big batch. If we don't like it, but we like the idea, we'll try it again and we'll make some changes and see what we want to do. And then every now and then we do a beer that is not something we ever want to do again. <laughs> but now we know, right? Yeah, yeah. we've had at least one abject disaster. Yeah, in fact, uh, we named it that. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the Manhattan disaster. <laughs> one in 76 seems like a pretty good success <laughs> record, though. I feel pretty good. I mean, you know, there are a couple where we've tried them and went, eh, it's good, but it still needs work. I mean, we've gone through four, five, six, maybe, I think the IPA originally, we've gone through about 12 iterations. Some of them, the first time you make it, you're like, man, this is awesome. We're just scaling it up and going. Um, the Schwarzbier, as an example, was like that. We did it on a small batch. I was like, oh, you know what? Let's do one. It sounds like fun. Um, and we tried it. We're like, holy crap, this is phenomenal. Let's instantly you know, plan for a big batch. But another one, like the rye, I think we went through like three or four small batch iterations before we were ready to make a bigger batch, and we kind of got it uh, dialed in. So Yeah. Yep, just varies. But that small batch gives us that flexibility, so... Gives us feedback. So, you know, when everybody comes in on Friday, we can see what they think. There are times when we think a beer is phenomenal. Everybody's like, 
that's that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Does it hurt when you hear that? <laughs> um, a little bit. I mean, you know, one everybody's of the things you realize, yeah, taste. Yeah. Everybody's got their own tastes. So as an example, you were saying, you know, you really like the Delta One Bravo. We'll have people who hate it. You know, it's too malty. They're used to really clean, crisp American style IPAs. Right. Which is great. You know, don't get me wrong. I love a good American IPA too. Um, and ours is much more of a hybrid. It's got sort of that English malt backbone to it. It's got a little more heft to it, a little more residual sweetness. And for some people, they're like, yeah, that's not what an IPA should be like. Okay. You are certainly allowed your opinion on your beer. We all have them. Uh, as I tell everybody, I don't like ginger beer. It's literally the only beer I don't like. And every year at Great American Beer Festival, I try a couple of ginger beers. And for 23 years of going to GABF, I still didn't like ginger beer. I finally found one this year that was drinkable. But before that, it was, for me, the combination of hops and ginger tastes like dish soap. And I've tried to get past it. I've really tried to like ginger beer. It's just not my thing. Who was the brewer that finally got it right? Oh, it was a company. I actually took a picture of it there um, up in the East Coast. It was a ginger lemon wheat. It was nice and light. I think because it was so light on the hops, it didn't trigger my dish soap theory. Now I know what I can do with ginger. Are you one of those super tasters? Because I hear dish soap and extra taste buds associated together. All oh, I've never heard that. But you know when you're in elementary school and they give you that little thing to try and everybody puts it on their tongue and like 90% of the people are like, I don't taste anything. And some of us are like, oh, my God, this is awful. Get it out of my. Yeah, that was me. So, well, the good thing is he does uh, pick up on flaws much sooner than anybody else. Right. So you're definitely more sensitive to some of those off flavors. So we can pick them up a lot earlier. Every now and then there's one, though, that I don't pick up as much. So that's one of the great reasons to have several people try your stuff is not everybody tastes everything to the same extent. There are certain things that I really, you know, I I literally just get a little bit of and be like, oh, yeah, we got to fix that. Um, and other people are like, I got nothing. And I know there's one, and I can't remember what it is now, that Chris keeps going, oh, yeah, no, I, I get so-and-so. And I'm like, no, I'm not getting anything. So Yeah, I think I'm more sensitive to the DMS a little bit. Maybe That might be it. Yeah. You are not alone. I cannot stand ginger beer. Really? Oh, that's good. Very few people seem to have that reaction. I know a couple people, but it, we seem to be in the minority, and that's cool. But, you know, I've always told people, too, like Charlie Papazian, have you ever read his book? The first one. Yeah. He's got a couple of those. Joy of Homebrewing. Right. The the, the seminal Bible of of brewing. If you ever read his recipe on Hefeweizen, it basically starts out, supposedly this is a great recipe. I wouldn't know because it's just not something I like. It has never appealed to me. It's not going to appeal to me. And that's fine. I always thought that was really a, a brilliant way of thinking about it, which is there are certain styles that just aren't me. And it's cool that everybody else likes them. I just know I don't. So I won't have it. That's great. Or in my case, I'll try two or three every year to try to see if I'm ever going to change that. We were at GABF this year, too, and it seems like sours are gaining a little bit of popularity. Are you guys seeing any other trends in certain styles or distinctions? Lagers seem to be making a little more of a comeback. It doesn't have the sex appeal of, say, uh, you know, a sour. I mean, the pastry stouts, I think, is a a huge thing now. Don't get me wrong, they're great and all, but it's kind of like a sour for me, which is I can have a sour or two. But then I get a little oversaturated and everything just tastes sour after that. I can't really get the nuance anymore. Um, and for me, the, the really sweet ones are kind of that same way. Did you say pastry stout? Yeah, that's that's kind of the term I think everybody's using. The super sweet, really high alcohol, barrel aged, chocolate, cinnamon, all the dessert stuff. 
there was an article recently, one of the guys went to a beer festival up in Chicago, and that was literally just what blanketed the awards. And he's like, it's great, but it's not really beer. It's dessert. When you have a German chocolate cake beer, that's great. But when everything is German chocolate cake, it's not so cool. What if I want something else today? So I, I think that's a big one. I mean, you certainly see a lot of barrel aged and super sweet and, you know, beers now being made with cereal, Count Chocula, the cinnamon one that somebody just did. So you're seeing a lot more of that bigger, sweeter kind of dessert beer almost. What does that look like actually turning the flavor into something that's a decent tasting beer? Do you actually use those ingredients or just something that produces that flavor? It varies. One of the awesome things about brewing for me is there are really only four ingredients, right? You got your water, you got your malt, you got your hops, you got your yeast. Those are the four. That's it. You can always add other stuff, but those are the base four. And just with those base four, you can make everything from a wheat to a super pale IPA to an oatmeal stout to a Baltic porter and anything in between just by varying those four ingredients. And you can get very specific flavors that you wouldn't think you'd be getting from malts, you know, the chocolates and the honeys. And chocolates like and graham cracker. and Yeah, exactly. Honey and um, and some of the yeast, you get really weird flavors too. Um, Hefeweizen, you know, you tend to get banana and clove and there's no banana or cloves in it. That's what you get sort of out of those. Our Irish ale yeast, I get a particular fruitiness, especially in our Irish red, that to me is kind of like strawberry Twizzler. And so all of those factors. we don't use strawberry And we don't actually. (laughs) Although I'll bet we could make a killing if we actually just threw a whole bunch of strawberry Twizzlers in a beer because everybody would flock to it. When you start to add those other ingredients that aren't those base four, Mm -hmm. cereal, for example, I imagine adding something like that to the mixture would throw off the whole fermentation process. When you start adding things, if it's got sugar in it, then you're going to adjust your alcohol levels and the fermentation will take off differently. Especially in cereals, I think you'd have additives you may not, you'd have to adjust to figure out what's going to happen in the beer. It may be a preservative or something. What's that going to do to the yeast, for example? So if you wanted to get bacon into a beer, how would you go about doing that? Have a beer in one hand and a bacon in the other. <laughs> That's a great answer. You, you yeah. can do, so bacon is going to be a tough one. It's weird, too, because all the different ingredients have nuances. There are certain things that happen, and they happen differently depending on when you add them. So as an example, our Clementine American wheat. We actually add the Clementines after the primary fermentation. So we basically let the yeast do its thing. But then... We do a secondary fermentation with the yeast still in the tank, so that way it's going to eat up some of those sugars that came from the clementine juice and turn that into a little more alcohol, but it tends to really meld all those flavors a lot better as opposed to some of the fruitier beers that you'll have kind of taste like it's a beer with fruit juice added, and they don't really have that time or they don't let the yeast do that melding, and sometimes that's what they want to do. You know, That's the intent of it. And sometimes you don't. So you kind of have to vary those things up. And the same thing would be true for, I've seen people who add donuts. Some of them add it literally almost right before bottle. So it's a secondary step. Some people do it in the mash. And it just is going to depend on what flavors you're looking to get out of that particular edition in that way. You mentioned that we have a bunch of fermenters, right? We've got six fermenters, which is more than most of a brewer's. But that gives us the flexibility to have time with our beers. So we're not in a rush to get it out to get the next beer in the fermenter. So that gives us the ability to do more lagering. It gives us the ability to spend more time on some of these additions and things like that. And once you get something dialed in to where you really like it, how sensitive is the recipe to tiny variation? Do your proportions have to be exact or is there any flexibility there? There's some wiggle room there, but honestly, the biggest issue is yeast because yeast is alive. 
And some days it wants to go to town right away. And some days it doesn't. And you kind of have to let the yeast do its thing in the time frame that it wants to. And you can try to rush it, but you wind up with a product that just isn't as good most of the time. The same thing is true for timing. You know, if you put something in with five minutes left in the boil and it takes longer for whatever reason to get your hoses hooked up. So it really turned into 10 minutes. That'll have a little bit of an effect and you'll notice it more. Ingredients tend to be a little more forgiving, but even just, you know, the differences in water between this month and six months ago, because our summer water is different than our winter water. You'll see some variations that way too. When hops you, year to year. Yeah. Hops year to year is another great one. When you're, uh, you know, on the scale of like, an, you know, an AB or a cores, they can spend a lot of time blending stuff together and ensuring that everything turns out exactly the same way each time. I think more as craft brewers, you tend to embrace that sometimes things will be a little different. You don't want them to be hugely different. You still want it to be the same beer, 99%, but it's going to be a little different from batch to batch. And that's um, a good thing. The other thing is too, for us, it's kind of nice because one of the reasons we got such big and numerous equipment was to make sure that we had scale. So as an example, if you're a guy who's brewing two to three barrel batches, you're going to turn it over so quickly that people are going to notice the difference. Whereas, you know, with a 10 barrel batch, by the time we brew another one, you're probably not going to notice it nearly as much just because of the time difference between them. I could sit here all day and ask you questions about the process. You guys have clearly been doing this a long time. When you said that your two-year anniversary was in February, it kind of surprised me because it seems like you guys have been here longer than that. Can we talk about your origin story? So uh, Chris is my best friend from high school. I love hearing um, that, the start of a story. <laughs> and I'm, well, I moved back to the U.S. for 10th grade. I grew up in Germany as a kid. I had been there from fourth through ninth. Chris was literally the second person I met in the U.S. after coming back. We had a class together and became best friends and have been ever since. We both kind of spread out during college. Uh, he moved here in 94, 92, 93, just before the Rockies got here. And I moved here when the Rockies got here because I moved here in 96. I had come out a couple times to interview for jobs and other stuff. And I always thought, oh, you know, I, I want to move here because it's, it's a lot like where I grew up in Germany um, and never really got the opportunity. Finally got a job and uh, I was doing national consulting. One morning I woke up and it realized my boss doesn't care where I live as long as I travel because I was living in St. Louis at the time. And I called him up and said, you don't care where I live, right? He said, not as long as there's an airport. I said, great. Can you push out my start date by a month? I'm going to move to Denver. So I sold the house and moved out. And I had started about a year before homebrewing. I think Chris had started. Had you done? Some? I had done a, yeah, some you small like one batches. I'd done some wine, tried to do some wine. And I remember stuff that. Like that too. So, yeah. Um, and so when we moved out, I actually was crashing with him for the first two months till I got an apartment. Um, and we started homebrewing and we've been homebrewing ever since. So it's been 23 years now, I think. 24. Yeah. And we started small, you know, like everybody does. Everybody starts with a five gallon batch. Yeah. We've moved many, many times. I think it started at his house and then he moved. So we moved it to my house because every time somebody moves, you move to the other guy's house so that, you know, it's just <laughs> one, less thing, there. Yeah, yeah. one less yeah. thing to deal with. And it doesn't interfere with your ability to make beer. So we've moved six or seven times now. And then we got kicked out of the kitchen and onto the back deck. And yep. then we got kicked out of the back deck into the garage. And about that time, we started to notice that, uh, you know, we'd make one of these five barrel batches and we'd give some away to friends and stuff like that. And at the end of it, we'd each end up with a six pack and we're like, yeah, well, okay. We'd start off with basically a we, case we and a half We need to do something each. about that. Yeah. So then we started to scale up equipment and we, we moved up to 20 gallon batches. After we built that over time, that's our pilot system now. So that gave us some beer that we actually could keep. Yeah. When we, when we each got a six pack, we kind of went, 
okay, we have two choices. We either need to disown our friends and relatives and stop giving them <laughs> beer, or we need a bigger system. And we thought, if we're going to build a bigger system, though, let's try to build something that would be a really, really small version of a commercial brewery so that we can start doing things like harvesting yeast and dealing with Forlauf and all of the steps that you're going to need as a commercial brewer. Because we always thought in the back of our heads, maybe someday it would be cool to do this. And so we got an opportunity to brew with the guys up at Beer by Design, uh, who are right around the corner from Chris's house. We'd gone over one day after brewing just to have a beer. They were brand new and we were talking to the guys and they're like, oh, you know, should come out and brew with us one day. We're like, you know, that'd be great. Sure. And you, know, you kind of think, oh, that's just, you know, people being nice. Um, and then about two or three times later, we were in there. They're like, hey, we're, we're going to brew tomorrow. Do you guys want to come? Yeah. <laughs> so I called my boss. I was like, uh, I won't be in work tomorrow. Um, and I think Chris did the same. Yep. And so we went and brewed with them and got to the end of the day and went, it's exactly the same thing. You know, we have all of the, the same equipment. Everything is the same. It's just much, much smaller. Instead of a pump that's the size of this table, it's a pump that's the size slightly smaller than a loaf of bread. So all of those things, we kind of went, we could do this. Then we kind of went through the discussion of how are we going to pay for it? Chris's youngest is now in college. My eldest is a freshman this year in high school. So a couple of years ago when we were doing it, it was, well, if we're going to do it, it's either got to be right now while you have your student loans already and I don't need mine quite yet, or we're going to have to wait until my youngest, who's a sixth grader, goes to college. And so we found that we had a really small window of opportunity and we jumped on. And that's how we kind of got to this point. And that timing meant that we had to open before we turned 15. And that led well, before to, you turned. Well, before. Well, either one of us. <laughs> now, I would have been first unless something weird happened. So that came up with the name. One of the first names we came up with was Half Century because of that. And Half Century was already taken. Yeah. So one of the things right now is there are so many breweries. Right. And so naming becomes an issue because you want to go get it trademarked and there can be only one. But worse, the feds actually have decided that, yeah, there are separate categories for beer and wine and spirits, but we don't care. You can have one name in any of the three categories and they can't cross. It might change a little bit. There was just a case recently where I think they backed off that finally. But instead of it being not just all the brewery names, now it can't share a winery name or a distillery name. Oh, but worse, because it actually can also be the name of a beer or the name of a wine or the name of a spirit produced by any of those guys. So with 4,000 breweries in the United States and all the micro wineries coming up and all of the micro distilleries coming up, naming is a problem. You're just starting to run out of words. So anyway, long story, but we loved Half Century. We thought that'd be really cool. And uh, there are a couple of breweries in Century City, California, who all have Century in the name. And we thought, yeah, that's probably going to be an issue. So we'll skip that. And we looked at a whole bunch of other names and uh, all of them were used in some way, shape or form. One day I was like, well, what if we cut it down to half cent? There's a couple of companies that make half cent ale. So we're like, oh crap, can't use that either. And uh, we obviously couldn't go to 50 cent because that's a whole different problem. <laughs> but we came up with half penny and we thought, well, that's just obviously taken. Um, and we did some research and nobody in the U.S. is using it. There are two breweries just outside of London. That makes sense. They're super tiny and literally I think they would fit in like the front half of the brewery combined. Like one of them is two or three old stable stalls in like a 1600s old castle stable or something. We heard it and we're like, wow, that's, you know, not only is it a great name, it's got kind of that European feel to it. It still has the whole kind of half century concept to it, but it's got that English German feel that we were kind of looking for as we you know built this place out and we thought it was perfect. And so that's how we got there. 
That's a great story. And I love the name. That's exactly what I've always thought it evoked, too, was that old English feel. When I was on my way here today and I asked for directions, Siri said, oh, yeah, I'll give you directions to the Hay Penny Brewery. I'm like, nice. That's what I'm going to call it from now on, because it's <laughs> essentially the same thing, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Just yeah. a different pronunciation. But names in general can be challenging, especially if you're not a creative type. You've got a lot of names on the wall there. You guys clearly have the brewing process dialed in. How do you come up with the names? <laughs> that's, that's usually a, a big group, uh, group text uh, extravaganza where, you know, if you happen to be off your phone and you come back and it's like 30 texts because we're trying to come up with a name for some new beer. But it's the whole crew. Everybody gets on it and throws ideas out. It's kind of like the brewing process. Sometimes the first name comes out. Everybody goes, that's it. No need to keep going. And sometimes it goes on for two or three days. (laughs) And with those, do you need to be as sensitive to whether someone else is using it or not? Yes and no. For the small batches, it's not as big a deal because they're super tiny. It's not like we're ever going to release it outside of here. Could somebody send us a cease and desist? Sure. And by the time they did, we'd be done. You do see that, but most of the time, if it's a small batch or whatever, it's really when you get into bigger estate presence that you run into a problem. And we've run into our share. Our very first version of the logo was different. It was actually kind of the same, except the the darker part was on the bottom and the top was white. Um, And we had, you know, sun rays coming out from behind it. That was really kind of the big differences. And if you don't quite understand what that looks like, you can go look at. Oh, yeah. Well, so the way that it (laughs) happened, we had just gotten this logo and we loved it. and We thought it was really cool. Um, My father-in-law for Christmas actually had a couple of shirts made for it. And I thought it was really super cool. Literally a week after Christmas, I had just gotten these shirts. We had finalized the logo in like early December. I put it up on stuff and, you know, social media and I was going through Twitter and I went, well, that's weird. I don't remember tweeting yesterday. And then I looked really closely at the logo and it wasn't mine. Uh, It was Telluride's and Telluride's, aside from theirs being an oval, there are a lot of differences. You know, ours are hot mountains and theirs are just mountains, but with the sun rays and everything else, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And we went, right, well, I guess we're going to change that right now before uh, you know we get uh, anything from Tyrod Brewing that says, yeah, change everything. Because you have seen that. There are a lot of breweries now that have had to rename themselves. Strange was kind of the big first one. You know, it's the, one of the few places that the brewing community does get a little contentious. Otherwise, you know, the community is phenomenal. People will talk to you about recipes, help you with stuff. You know, if somebody's fermenter goes down, somebody will come in and, you know, ship stuff over. If you have a part that goes down or you need hops because you ran low one day, everybody is more than happy to help out and pitch in and everything else. The only place now is, and it's because of the scarcity of names, you're starting to see that become an issue. And part of it's just, it's the law. If you have a trademark and you find out somebody else is using that name and you don't do anything, you lose the trademark you're obligated to go do something, which is kind of silly. I think people take it a little excessively. You know, you could just say, hey, great. You want to license that beer name for a dollar? Great. We'll do that. We satisfied our legal requirement to make sure that you were complying and everybody's happy. In fact, there was a hysterical one. I don't know if you guys saw the other day. There's a brewery up in Minneapolis who did a double IPA and they called it Dilly Dilly. Dilly Dilly. Yes. And AB sent somebody there to basically say, hey, you guys can't use that name. It was just hysterically funny because they sent a guy in medieval garb with a giant scroll. And it was basically, hey, you guys can use that name as long as it's for the small batch, but don't do it again. It was ungodly funny. I mean, he had a 
15 minute speech about future infringements will be met with additional scrolls. NAB InBev, they could have been dicks about that. And they, they could have. Absolutely. They, they were. That was, and, and they, they handled have. that really well. <laughs> in you know, the past. Yeah. In the past, they have. So, you know, I thought that was a really good way of doing it. The classic case was always with someone in California and I think somebody in Oregon, and they both had the same name. This is 20 years ago now. But the way they decided is the two owners got together and arm wrestled, and whoever won got to keep the name. And it was actually so wildly successful that what came out of it was they did a collaboration beer right afterwards. And I think it was called collaboration, not litigation. And so it wound up being, you know, really popular and really positive for both groups. Do you guys have a database you can look at? Do you just use Google? How can you tell if something's taken? Google is 90% of it now. I mean, if you're going to actually go and do a real trademark, you need to go through a trademark search and it's a lengthy and expensive process. If we ever start doing something much bigger, We'll go through some of those, but for now it's all in house. And so, yeah, you Google and make sure that nobody's, you know, using it and then you're cool. And TTB has a database also that you can search for names, but for it's, names it's less complete than I think a regular Google search, yeah. but depends on how far you're going to distribute it, how much you want to invest in that. Yeah. It'd be a really expensive process if we try to get a trademark on the <laughs> beer we make every single week. One keg, that'd be a two grand right there just for the trademark search really good to hear that the community is so supportive of one another. Having been at it for a couple of decades now, what's changed? What's different about the microbrew community in almost 2018 than it was in the late 90s? Well, it's larger is one of the big things, right? You yeah, know, the enormously Yeah, the number of small breweries around has just exploded. I think uh, this year was the year that we passed the number of breweries that were pre-prohibition. Yeah, uh, it might have been late last year, but yeah. yeah pretty close to it in the united states in the united states as a whole yeah Yeah, so basically you know after prohibition all the breweries closed and only last year did we get back to the same number of breweries that we had in 19 that's amazing i never would have thought that because it seems like there is a not just a brewery but a good brewery every other block where it's zoned to be able to put one i brag to everyone i know who lives outside of colorado like this is the best place to live because of how many great brewers we have what are some of the other hot spots? We know San Diego and Oregon. What are some other good areas in the United States that have some neat things going on in brewing right now? The Chicago, kind of Wisconsin, Indiana area, that Chicago land area is, is pretty big. You're seeing a lot of the ones coming out of the Northeast, New York and Farmstead Hill and Alchemist and Vermont. And, you know, that area is still really big. We're kind of unique, I think, because Denver's a really cool city in a lot of ways because we're so far away from everything else. Even if you look at just historically, Denver had to have one of everything because there was no way to get it from anywhere else. I come from the East Coast and D.C. could specialize in government and Philadelphia didn't have to or some of the art and culture from New York or you had brewing in Pennsylvania and it was all close enough that you could move it around. Whereas, you know, the closest city here is what, KC maybe, uh, Salt Lake. And so it, it had to go you know, forever to get here. And so part of that is just, you know, we've always had that sort of self-reliance. We have everything here. We also tend to be near most of the barley crops, so that's a good thing. And it doesn't hurt that, you know, Charlie kind of started the whole homebrewing legalization effort and then AHA and BA and, and all the rest of that. And when you combine that with the fact that we have probably the best water around, you get a place that's really, really keen on brewing. And, you know, having a governor and slash mayor who uh, used to be a brewer doesn't hurt. So, you know, I think you're just seeing a whole lot of different factors that make this the Disneyland of beer, certainly in the U.S. There are still a couple of laws. It seems like it's uh, taking them a while to catch up to a more modern mentality, particularly when it comes to beer and home brewing. 
Any legal challenges with where you're at right now? Where we are now, no. The initial process for opening the brewery was long and painful. Yeah, very um, slow. And those laws were set up right after Prohibition was ended. And it doesn't really seem like that part of it has changed much in the intervening 80 years or whatever it is. So I think that there's a lot of room for speeding up some of that process. And I think that TTB has tried to do that. For example, if you're going to use something other than the main four ingredients in beer, you have to submit a formula to this TTB. And what they did two years ago... They added a whole bunch of things that said, all right, these are all traditional ingredients. If you're just using these, you don't have to submit this, which getting rid of a whole bunch of paperwork out of the way. So that helped a lot. So they've made some steps that way, but the process is still really kind of painful. Adding fruit or some of the spice beers was literally you had to apply to them and they had to approve it first. And I think they just realized, holy God, there's thousands now of these breweries. And if they all keep sending us these on a weekly basis, we won't have time to get anything else done. So they put together this list and they've now revised it once or twice. So there's a list of stuff that, you know, chilies as an example, if you want to make a chili beer, heck, eight years ago, you had to get prior approval because chilies were not one of the big four. So it was a different thing. And now there's a pretty big list of fruits and orange. stuff you'd expect. Yeah. Generally fruits and spices. And every now and then there's a really odd one, like peanuts are not on the list. So all the peanut butter beers you see, technically they have to go to the feds. But oysters are on the list, which I don't really get because there are as many people with seafood allergies as peanut allergies. So I don't get that one, nor do I really think that oysters are a traditional ingredient, <laughs> but okay. You wouldn't see donuts on the list, for example. No, right? do- donuts are, are not on the list. It's literally the big four. And then it's like I said, it's mostly spices, fruits, oysters, which again, I don't quite get, but I think we actually Tried, a, tried an oyster beer this year at GABF. It's not something I'm going to drink again. <laughs> if, if I had it was an oyster habanero, I believe, was the really? beer. And it was very interesting to taste. But yeah, I wouldn't be clamoring to have another one or even a whole one. So, Well, it's like you pointed out. You want to try different things. So yeah. Oh, absolutely. The opportunity at the Great American Beer Festival for all the different things that you can sample is amazing. But that doesn't mean you're going to run out and buy it. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when we used to go to the GABF, we'd go every year. My mom comes into town. We have friends. We used to get a group of about 12 people together to go, which now, since we're working it mostly, we don't get to do anymore. But it was always really fun because you'd get a group together and everybody would pick a theme. You'd organize it ahead of time. So I might be doing brown ales today. And mom typically does, you know, Hellas's and Oktoberfests. And Chris might go, you know, this year I'm going to do beers that start with them. It really doesn't matter what you pick. But then everybody does that. And that gives you the opportunity to, if it's just a good beer, you're like, okay, fine, I'll taste it. And that's great. But I won't share it with everybody else. But if it's a really good beer or a really awful one, then you got to get everybody to try it as well. And so, you know, you kind of get that experience of, I get to try all the stuff that I wouldn't have ordinarily expected to try because it was either awesome or awful. And, and that's cool. There aren't nearly as many awful beers anymore. That's one of the things I think you're really seeing is even with the explosion in craft beer, you kind of have to come to the table with good beer because if you don't, to your point, there's a place three blocks down that I can go instead. In the early days, you did have your share of somewhere you went and it's different. There are beers that I have, you know, like the Oyster Habanero that I'd be like, this is a really well-made beer, but it is not my beer. It is not something I want to drink. I don't like it. That's very different than that's not a very well-made beer. You just don't see much of the latter anymore. You still see plenty of the former. I mean, I've tried a bunch of stuff where I go, Okay, not sure why anybody would have thought oysters and habaneros went together, but cool. But, and but, frankly, 
we have our peanut butter chili beer. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. And we (laughs) submitted it. And all three judges came back with, this is a very well-made beer. But we can't, for the life of us, figure out why anyone would have put those two ingredients together. (laughs) And the scores reflected it. (laughs) We make it every year. We like it. Yeah. So, yeah. It's it's a love-hate beer. People either love it or they hate it. I don't think anybody comes in going, that's all right. When you make something like the peanut butter and jelly beer or when I was in chili. the bathroom or chili, chili, oh, chili yeah. beer. Peanut wow. And chili. Even sounds better than the jelly. <laughs> I saw you guys have a sugar cookie. The Maybach. Where out. does the inspiration for this come from? That actually came from a list. Chris said, hey, you know, we should do some Christmas beers. All right, cool. Um, and Chris put some together. And I'm like, dude, if we're going to go all out on Christmas beers, let's let's do crazy stuff. Three freaks. They make a beer with stuffing. We could do an entire course. We could do a sweet potato beer and a pumpkin pie beer and a mashed potato beer. So one of the ones as we were just throwing out a huge list of stuff we could do, crazy though it might be, the sugar cookie came up. We're like, oh, maybe we could do something like a Maybach with that, you know, really get that cakey flavor or the shortbready flavor out of it. The lager yeast that'll keep it nice and clean and a little bit of lemon to it. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. And one of the great things about having the small batch is... If you make a 10 barrel batch of something and it sucks, you, you go, wow, it, it's, it's habanero. Yeah, yeah, it's a habanero chili. <laughs> it doesn't taste nearly as good as, as maybe I originally thought it might. You're all in. You know, you got a ton that you're either getting rid of or it's going to sit around for a long time. Whereas with a small batch like that, if it turns out that a sugar cookie Maybach is not a good beer, you know, it lasted three days. Everybody will try it. To your point, they'll be like, I tried it. I had my half glass. Don't want any more. I'm good, but it'll still be gone in a week and, you know, there's no harm, no foul. Are there particular beers which started off as a wild idea and now they're on your regular menu? Well, the Clementine, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the Clementine was a, it's you have a lot flagships, of yeah. You have a lot of, I want to call them accident beers. So I'll give you two stories. <laughs> the first one was. Happy accidents. When we, when we first started, you know, talking about getting into commercial brewing. Chris was actually like, God, we really need to dial in our recipes. And I said, we do on one hand, but on the other, we had so much change just going from five to 15 gallons that 15 to a big batch, we're going to have to dial it on the big batch anyway. So I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense to dial it on the small batch. If we're just going to have to go ahead and redo it all, you know, again, when we get to the big batch. We're not saving any time. Chris was like, well, what if a batch doesn't turn out the way we like it? And I said, well, you know, from my experience in breweries, you basically just give it a different name. If your beer didn't turn out, you can't call it whatever you usually call it. You give it a new name. And I said, heck, probably actually charge an extra dollar because it's a unique one-off that you'll never get again. It's a rare beer. Um, Chris is like, that's ridiculous. Nobody would ever do that. So we were actually brewing out at Beer by Design. Beer by Design. And they were like, yeah, we just did this beer and we don't know what happened. It was supposed to be a peach ale, but we got some bug in it and it turned sour and I said, really? He's like, he said, yeah, it actually turned out to be pretty good, but it's not obviously our peach ale. And Chris said, oh, so that must have really sucked to dump it all. And the guy's like, dump it? Hell no. We threw it on the tap. It's been selling like there's no tomorrow. We have no idea how to ever replicate it, but we're charging an extra dollar a beer for it. So I, we thought, you know, that was really funny. And I've seen the same thing. There's a peach habanero ale from, I think it was Rogue who did the same thing, like, we have no idea. They changed the recipe four times because they screwed it up, so they thought, oh, well, what do we do? We'll add peaches. Then it got two peaches. So they're like, well, how do we cut the peach and the sugar? Well, let's add some chilies. And it was phenomenal, and they've been trying to replicate it for 15 years, and they still haven't gotten a batch that they like as much. 
that's got to be frustrating trying so, to find your way back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And you do have that sometimes. So our our Clementine ale actually came about because when we first started this new, bigger but scaled down microbrewery concept, let's try reusing yeast. You know, we'd always been homebrewers. You always pitch new yeast every time. Let's try reusing some. Well, what should we do? Well, I don't know. We had just done an IPA. It was in fact, it was one of our many many batches of the Delta One that was we were trying to work on that recipe. We said, well, let's just reuse the ale yeast. Okay, cool. Well, what should we reuse it in? Well, you know, we had just done the Hefeweizen, the batch before that, and we'd use the exact same recipe for the Hefeweizen, um, but we use the ale yeast and we'll kind of do like an American wheat beer. Thought, okay, cool. Let's do that. And so we did. And uh, we were in the middle of the brew day and we kind of got to that point and we got to the hop bill and I went to the freezer and we grabbed the, we used German hops for the Hefe. But we also still had uh, some of the leftover hops, Atanum, or back then we were using Citra, Simcoe and Citra and Amarillo. And we had a little bit left in there. And I'm like, huh, you know what, if it'd be good, what if we threw those in kind of late as a different hop edition? Okay, well, let's try that. So we threw those in. And then Chris is like, you know, we've really just winged this recipe. What if it's awful? We're going to be stuck with 15 gallons of it. Maybe we should split it up and we'll try doing maybe some fruit or something and we'll see how we like those. We'll do half regular and we'll add fruit to half of it. And it was probably March, April time frame ish, maybe a little bit later. But the only real fresh fruit in the stores were clementines. So like, hey, kind of goes with the citrusy that we had done with the hops. What if we throw that in? So we went and bought a bag and crushed them up and threw those in for the secondary. And when we tried it, we're like, this is awesome. We've changed the recipe twice now once because we couldn't get citra and emerilla hops so we went with atanum and mosaic instead and then most recently the mandarina bavaria has now come out and it's got a really tangerine clementine flavor to it that really just reinforces everything so we've actually moved over to using that instead of you know sort of the mixed hops that we were doing before so sometimes you just do you make a mistake you do something and you go oh whoops well it's a perfectly good beer it's just not the beer we intended. In fact, two of our first beers uh, were that way. When we opened, we had two rotating <laughs> beers. And the reason was we had just gotten our TTB like January early January, 17th yeah, or something. Yeah. So like, okay, we got to brew right now so that we can be open as quickly as possible. Because the way the process works to your earlier question, you apply with the feds. And if you're lucky, four months later, they open it. And then another couple months later, they might actually respond with stuff they want. You respond right away. Four weeks later, you might then get something back. It's just a very long, drawn-out process. It sounds like it. But the two things that you need in order to apply for the feds are, A, a property, so you have to have already signed a lease, and B, you have to have an order for your equipment so you can describe what your equipment will be exactly, which means you've already put at least half down on an equipment. So you have a ton of expense that you can't be recouping at all because you can't sell any beer until you get federal approval. In fact, you can't make beer until you get federal approval. So the first thing you do is you brew like crazy. We had just gotten our TTB. Chris said, oh, hey, let's do the Irish red first. It's really easy. It's straightforward. That sounds good. Let's do that. Hey, just to be safe, though, let's at least let it get through fermentation so we know we did everything right. And so we did. And, you know, the fermentation went great. Everything was fine. And we thought, okay, well, that's good. Let's do, as the second beer, the, uh, the Hellas. The Hellas, Because yeah. it's going to take a long time. So we did the Hellas, and it was in the tank. The next day, we brewed the oatmeal stout, 
And that was a Monday. And on Tuesday I came in and I went over to check the temperatures. And instead of fermenting at 50 for the Hellas and 65 for the oatmeal stout, our fermenters were at like 82, 83 degrees. What had happened was that night it had gotten so cold here in Denver, it had dropped to like eight below that the chiller, the condenser, kind of like your air conditioner, had gotten so cold that all the Freon inside it had condensed, which drops the pressure. And there's a sensor on those that shuts the whole system down because it thinks you have a leak. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't tell any of the other stuff down here that it's shut down. So all the pumps keep running and everything keeps recirculating. And with all that yeast going to town, everything heated up to 83 degrees. And so to your earlier point of what do you do with a beer that's not quite right? Well, obviously a Hellas that ferments at 80 degrees is not a Hellas. It's barely recognizable as a lager, but it was still a really good beer. It had a little farmhouse, almost Belgian flair to it. It was still nice and clean, but had a lot of that really estery, almost spicy yeah,ness yeah, to it. And we're like, well, we could call it a German farmhouse lager. And the same problem with the oatmeal stout, instead of fermenting over a week, it was literally done in two days at 82 degrees. Oh, wow. It was a lot drier than it should have been, obviously, because the yeast just went to town. And the other thing is when you scale recipes, they don't all scale quite linearly. Most things do, but smoked malt, you need a lot less of it, even at bigger quantities. Makes sense. And so it turned out to be uh, kind of super smoky because we had basically scaled up and cut it by a factor of four. And even that wasn't enough. So it was kind of smoky. And we're like, well, what if we called it a smoked porter? And people still ask us when we're going to make those two beers today. <laughs> so we would literally release them as they were just happy accidents. Yeah. And Great stories. Do we want to talk about what's coming up for the brewery in the next couple months and uh, what patrons should be paying attention to? Well, we've got our anniversary coming up in February, right? That's our big event for the year. And last year we brewed four or five beers, especially for that week. And, you know, we released uh, a couple special beers, including, was that our first barrel-aged beer last yeah, year? That yeah, that was our first big beer. And uh, we're going to release two barrel-aged beers for the anniversary, along with a bunch of other ones. Uh, I don't think we've completely nailed down the whole lineup, but the barrel-aged Imperial Stout, for sure, and our We Heavy we're barrel aging that right now. So that's that in brandy barrels. In brandy, yep. Yeah, we, we've, uh, we've now tripled the amount of barrels that we have, so... When are those beers actually going to hit the tap? Those will hit the tap room that week of our anniversary. It's the 24th, which I think is a Saturday this year. Yeah, I think it's um, So it'll be, you know, sort of starting like the 20th, 19th, Monday through that Friday. We plan on releasing a new beer every day, kind of like we did last year. We'll have a bunch of events, bands, and everything else. You know, a lot of the stuff that we tend to do, we'll just take it up a notch. Right on. You can count on me being there. Anything else that you wanted to... I've never heard him this quiet on the mic <laughs> ever. <laughs> There is one thing I think we need to do. We have a segment on the show oh, that's called right. I Remember My First Beer. When our guests come on, we have them tell, you know, it doesn't have to be a long story, but just what was your first experience with a beer? What is it, Grandpapa? I remember my first beer. My very first experience with a beer would have been when uh, <laughs> either my dad or my grandfather was not looking. <laughs> Uh, and uh, my dad would drink Coors, and this was on the East Coast, so this was pretty special stuff at that point. I don't remember really liking that first beer, but I came around. So We hear that a lot. <laughs> so my first was probably, it couldn't have been more than six or seven, because we hadn't left for Germany yet. And so I remember being at some sort of function, or maybe out to dinner or whatever. But anyway, my dad was having, it was probably a Budweiser at the time, I seem to recall. 
And he said, oh, you want to try some? And he handed the glass to me, but then he was talking to somebody and turned. And I tried it. And I actually thought it was pretty good. And I believe I finished it. And he turned around and went, what the, you know. Um, so apparently I had a really good night. I don't really remember it because I was, um, but you know, German beer, that was phenomenal. Moving there as a kid, the drinking age in Germany, I believe now it's officially 16, but back then and, and even today, it really is. If you're old enough to order it, you're pretty well good. And so you could try anything and, you know, we'd visit breweries every single town all the time. And so that's kind of where I got my first real exposure to beer as opposed to stealing dad's bud. Chris Rigret. Chris Garner, thank you very much. For the listeners, I think you can find information on the tap room and the event schedule at is it halfpennybrewing.com? Yep. And Facebook is Halfpenny Brewing as well. Yeah, we've got um, all our events on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have a bunch of beers coming out. We have the Pecan Pie Brown coming out this weekend. The Sugar Cookie Maybach is the following weekend. And then we got the London the Brown. The London or? Brown coming out in the second week of January, I think. Oh, we have a Chipotle smoked porter for right after New Year's, your hangover helper. And a mosaic uh, wheat and pillow mosaic coming, wheat out. coming out yeah, sometime in the next few weeks. Yeah. And I can guarantee reviews for a number of those beers on Untapped. <laughs> How do you guys feel about that platform? Is it valuable? You know, it is. I mean, it's, it's always good to see what people are thinking and what people's tastes are. On the other hand, you don't necessarily want to chase that. Right. You kind of want to make the beers that you want to make. And you do have to get that through your head early. I'm going to make beers that I like. And you don't. And you may put on Facebook and untapped and everything else how crappy a beer it is. And you kind of have to go, well, okay, that sucks. I'm sorry you didn't like it. If you're here in the brewery and you don't like the beer, let us know. We'll hook you up with something else. We don't want anybody to be sitting around drinking a beer they don't like. That doesn't benefit us. doesn't benefit you. But I think the big difference is just, you know, there are a lot of people who figure that this isn't an IPA I like, therefore it's not a good IPA. Not sure that's really valid. If that were the case, then there would be no such thing as a good ginger beer because I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Left hand would be really bummed. Right on. Well, if you're hearing this, make a point to get down to Halfpenny and try the different beers. And if you don't like something, they'll point you in a different direction. And if you're lucky enough on a Sunday, you might run into one of the Chris's and uh, get some extra guidance. Again, thank you both. This is something we've been looking forward to for a long time. Awesome. Um, Glad you guys come down. Thanks a lot. If you're a brewer by trade or hobby or a geek with any kind of opinion, we invite you to come be part of the show. This whole endeavor just works better when we have extraordinary guests. We'll be waiting to hear from you at tapingeekout.com. I'm Doug Lund, and Colonel Quiet over there is Eric G. Hollis. From our Yule Log to yours, cheers. <laughs>